Well, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. The nature of Scripture is such that it's relevant to every generation. There's no part of the Bible that any age will ever be able to say of that this is not relevant for our time. And this is certainly and most definitely true for the 21st century. For some time now, we've been studying Paul's epistle to the believers in Ephesus and more recently, coming to understand better what it means to be a Christian, what a Christian looks like and lives like and the driving motivations behind the Christian's life. Paul makes some seemingly obvious statements about the Christian compared to the world. For example, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he describes the difference in nature. The unbeliever is spiritually dead, separated from God, but the believer has been made alive in Christ. This is something really that should make perfect sense to anyone professing to be a Christian saved by God's grace. And then two chapters later, Paul picks up that same theme, getting very practical, as he often does, explaining sanctification and then giving commands in line with the explanations and doctrine that he's just been teaching, and then making a series of what may seem to be very repetitive points, namely that the Christian is different from the unbeliever. He says things like, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's the first part of chapter 4. Clearly, indicating that there is to be a change in the way we walk based on whether or not we are Christian. And he compares this way of walking to the way, contrarily, the Gentiles walk. And then he spends the rest of chapter 4 describing the Christian walk, what it is and what it is not. He really leaves no stone unturned and no question unanswered regarding the character, the nature, the goals, and the ways the Christian should walk and should live. But then he also never forgets to address it from the opposite angle. He addresses it from the angle of the unbeliever. He repeatedly reminds us not only of the character and nature of the Christian, but also the character and nature of the man without Christ. They are, he says, darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. They're enemies of God, haters of self, and on and on. The Apostle Paul describes what the nature and character of an unbeliever is is versus that of a believer. He presses upon the believers at Ephesus that now, differently than before, they have learned something new, something different than the world. He says, you have learned Christ, and that they've learned Him in a salvific way. They've been reborn, remade, they're new creatures. He's encouraging the believers over and over to know and understand the difference And by the time you finish chapter 4, I think if most of us were honest, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, Paul, I've got it. I understand. We understand that the believer is very different from the unbeliever. They're not the same. You've said this over and over and over in various different ways. Now, surely, you're going to move on. And just as you think that, you come to the first verse in chapter 5, and you hear, therefore... Be imitators of God. In the very first verse, Paul's not quite done. Now, by the way, remember there are no chapters and verses in the original, right? This was an epistle. It's a letter 
to the believers in Ephesus. The chapters and verses are just put there for our benefit to make it easier to read and reference and study. But initially, this was a letter, and Paul is continuing the same line of thought. So clearly, this is a subject of dire importance. The Christian is to walk in a worthy manner, Paul says. The Christian is to walk in love, Paul says. And last week, we came to verse 8 in chapter 5, where Paul says again, in a different way, walk as children of light. And this comes on the heels of having described in the previous verse the unsaved man and pointing to what the Christian was before he was saved. You were once darkness, now you are light, he says. And by the way, Paul still isn't done. But why? I mean, this is the question that we ought to ask. Why is Paul so frequently addressing the very same issue in this letter to Ephesus over and over again. Why is there so much focus on the way the Christian is to live? Why so much emphasis on the difference between the Christian and the world, the believer and the unbeliever? Why so much dissecting and testing and evaluating from Paul, the old and the new, the sinner from the saint, the child of wrath from the child of light? One answer is for sure. God knew the church would need to hear this over and over again. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that the believers in Ephesus and that you and I would need to be reminded over and over and over again that we are the light and that the light has no fellowship with the darkness. Light has no partnership with the darkness. In verse 7, Paul said it this way, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Paul knew that the believer would need to be reminded of who they are. And now, because they are different than what they were, they no longer have anything in common with the darkness because they are now light. There needed to be such clarity that the testing of the Christian life was simple. There should really be no question for us as believers what constitutes a Christian and what doesn't. Paul wasn't repetitive just for the sake of being repetitive. No, he's repetitive because he knew we would need constant and clear reminders. He wanted the believers in Ephesus and thus us today who profess Christ, to know without any shadow of a doubt what constitutes a Christian. What does a Christian look like, think like, act like? Of course, we could be tempted to read through these few chapters and think, look, I got the message several paragraphs back. But every generation seems to need these few chapters and this same reminder, and they seem to need it even in the same manner over and over and over again. If you have a child or you've ever been a child, you also understand this concept because if you've been a child, and we all have, we know that sometimes parents have to say the same thing over and over and over 
And if you have a child, you know that sometimes you have to say the same thing over and over and over. Well, Paul is speaking to his spiritual children, God's children, and sometimes we need to hear the truth over and over and over. But every generation seems to need this. If we look at our own generation, if we look at the church today, if we look at the visible church in America today, and I say visible simply as a way to distinguish and understand the tares and the wheat, right? Those who are genuinely born again and those who are not comprise the visible church. They all grow together, right? We can't tell any difference. We see them together. We only tell the difference by the way they act and the fruit, but we see them all together. So I use the term visible church, okay? In reality, there is only one church, and the true church only consists of those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. There's no imposter, there's no fraud, there's no apostate in that church, only sons and daughters of the living God. But here on this side of glory, here on earth, the church, as we see it, the visible church is made up of the wheat and the tares, okay? But let's take the visible church today. How desperately does it need this message to the Ephesians? A great many churches are doing everything they can today to earn the world's favor. That's just the reality we live in. A few years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest networking of churches in the country, echoed in the news with a phrase, quote, the world is watching. Why do I bring that up? You see, they didn't want to upset the world, and that's what they meant by that. I know I was at that convention meeting. They didn't want to lose favor with the world. Now, we're no longer a Southern Baptist church, but this is indicative of churches in the West today. They didn't want to lose favor with the world. They didn't want to offend the world. But that was the wrong statement. They in reality, have forgotten that the light can have no dealings with the darkness. What they should have said from that platform is that God is watching. God is watching the church. It matters what God thinks. Paul, writing to the Galatians in chapter 1 and verse 10, says this. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? And I would ask you that question this morning. Are you trying to seek the favor of men or of God? Paul goes on, he says, Or am I striving to please men? It's a question we all need to ask. Are we striving? Are we living our lives to please men? He continues, he says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Paul's statement could not be any further from the SBC statement, the world is watching. Paul says God is watching. I'm not living to please men. If I was trying to live to please men, I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. So we can't have both because light has nothing to do with darkness. They can never partner with one another. 
And much of evangelicalism today seems to have turned from trying to please God to trying to please the world. Paul knew that. The Holy Spirit certainly knew that that would happen, even in Paul's own day, which is why he has to say the same thing every way that he can over and over again. But how many who profess Christ, even out there this morning, are trying to tell the world, we'll make you feel at home if you come. If you come to the church world, we'll make you feel at home. Your vices will be overlooked. Your music preferences will be met. And your heartfelt needs will be catered to. And we'll be just as inclusive as, and welcoming as any bar or any nightclub or any group out there. How many believers out there this morning are promoting that type of thing? But Paul says, if I'm trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. In reality, that mentality that we have so much in the Western evangelicalism of today does nothing more than turn the church into a brothel and prostitutes the bride of Christ before the world. And perhaps even more sad than that is that they think God will forever turn a blind eye to it. In fact, a pastor in our own city communicated to me once that if I wanted to build a church here, don't preach against sin. Consequently, it's one of the largest churches in the community, so-called. And it's amazing, by the way, that this particular Ministry has homeless ministries. They're involved in the local school and they do other community service projects and yet they have no real impact. Why? Except that the homosexual community has intimated that they feel perfectly comfortable in that church. Paul says, do not be partakers with them. Well, why, Paul? Why shouldn't we be partakers with them? Well, he answers the question. He says, because you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. You see, it's necessary for Paul to spend sufficient time to help the Christian understand and know without a shadow of a doubt that there is a stark difference between light and the dark and that the two have no union. Our generation today is proof anecdotally that Paul's message is absolutely necessary in just the way he's given it. Given the current state of Western evangelicalism today, it's clear that Ephesians need to be read and reread over and over and obeyed. Far too many who profess Christ today believe that they can somehow be unified with the world. Somehow they can earn the world's affection. Somehow they can twist and manipulate and distort and present things in such a way that the world will say, oh, hey, we really like you. You're one of us. Indeed, the only way to do that is if you are one of them. Otherwise, a child of light cannot be joined 
to the darkness. Jesus certainly makes it clear that there would never be a time, ever, when the world would love or even like the church. Listen to the words of our Lord from John 15, 18 through 20. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You understand that? If you belong to Christ, the world will hate you. And so if a Christian ever finds himself being loved by the world, we ought to be concerned. Jesus goes on, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's pretty clear. And so why do we have churches and professing believers out there trying to win the affections of the world when Jesus says it's just not possible? In Luke 6, 26, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Did you catch that? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That seems like a good thing, so why? Why woe to you? Well, because their fathers used to treat false prophets that way. That sounds remarkably like the world loves its own, right? That's what he's saying. And so the idea that we can make the gospel palatable or somehow earn the right to present the gospel in a way that's well-received is contrary to everything Scripture teaches. Now, I'm not saying we are supposed to be combative. I'm not saying we're supposed to look for fights or desire to be hated. No, on the contrary, not at all. The Christian should always seek to be at peace with all men. But we have to recognize that because of the very difference in nature, the dark will always hate the light. The slave of Christ will always be condemned by the world. And the only type of Christian who's loved by the world is a false Christian. The fact that so many evangelicals believe that the dark can love the light is evidence that Paul's continual teaching on the difference between the Christian and the godless is as much needed today as it was when he wrote that epistle. We don't preach the gospel so that the world will like us. We preach the gospel so that all of those who are called by God to be sons and daughters from eternity past would come to know Him through the proclamation of that gospel. That's why we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel not so that the world will like us, but so that some would be saved. And we realize that the additional effect of the gospel is that all of those who hate God will hate those who proclaim the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 25 reads, But we preach Christ crucified, 
to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For every one of those who God calls to Himself, they will hear the gospel and they will be saved, becoming children of light. And so Paul, writing to those, to you and I, who have indeed learned Christ as walk as children of light, do not become partakers of the darkness. There's a stark difference. The two can't be the same. There's nothing the same about them. Now Paul comes again to a description of the Christian, and this time specifically as a child of light. Spoke about that last week. First he speaks about the Christian or the unbeliever, and then he proceeds to describe their character and nature, and he does it again in verses 7 and 8. Now our text this morning is found in verses 9 through 10. If you put your eyes on that. Paul has just told us that there's no unity between light and dark, and that as children of light, we're to walk in light. And now he says, sort of in a parenthetical statement, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Let me back up and just read 7 through 10 for you for context. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, our verses for this morning. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The topic that the apostle deals with here is really the issue of fruit. The issue of fruit. It's the nature of of all things that they bear particular fruit after its own kind. There's no exception to this. The peach tree bears fruit. We call them peaches. It doesn't matter if you prefer an orange or an apple, you'll always get a peach from the peach tree. Apples, trees, we get apples. Fig trees, we get figs. The animal kingdom is precisely the same. The lion produces fruit of offspring which are lions, the dog, puppies, and so forth. In the spiritual realm, we come to see the same thing. The sons of God, and there are sons of wrath, each defined by, identified with, and known by their fruit. It's the characteristic of the Christian that they bear fruit, and not just any fruit. Like we said, the apple tree can't produce anything other than apples, and so the true Christian can't produce anything other than Christian fruit. What is that? The fruit of the light. Because you are children of light. So Paul continues to tell us then what this fruit looks like. What is this fruit of the light? Right? And here's the litmus test for the believer. Do I bear the fruit consistent with the light? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. If you ask professing believers today what are the fruits by which you know the Christian, I suspect you'll get varying answers. Some will say that if you do good deeds, you're a Christian. 
Others will say that if you join a church, still others that if you give financially to the church, and then perhaps others if you attend the midweek Bible studies. And there'll be many other things like this that make that list. But the problem is that these things that I've just listed can be and often are done simply in the flesh. And so in and of themselves, they are not the proper gauge of having been made a child of God. Though they are good things, and even all of these good things true believers should be and would be doing, they're not necessarily the evidence of salvation. There are many who hate God and yet do good deeds. So good deeds can't be fruit of the light in and of itself. Did you know that many people join churches Not because they are children of the light, but because they deem it to be the socially acceptable thing to do. Or perhaps they join the church because they believe it's the best place to make business contacts. Or a myriad of other reasons that have nothing to do with worshiping God or being a part of the body of Christ in an obedient and meaningful way. Many unbelievers join the church. This is why... Regenerate church membership is so important. So membership of a church in and of itself can't be an evidence of the fruit of the light. Though every believer should be a member of a local church and will be, many unbelievers attend church, not because they love God or, sorry, give to the church, attend and give to the church. You know that many wealthy unbelievers give to the church Well, why? Not because they love God, but for tax deductions. I myself have known men who weren't Christians who gave very generously to the church for tax deductions. So just because someone gives money to the church doesn't mean they're a child of the light. And this is true of the majority of the reasons that people would give if you were to ask, what is the evidence of someone being a child of the light? They'll name many things that a Christian should do and would do, but they'll name mostly things that you could do without being a Christian. But the list that Paul gives is distinctly different than that. The list that Paul gives is a list that man cannot do on his own. These are spiritual works that can only be born of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in the saved man. And the first one that he mentions is goodness. And I want to take a look at these a little more closely. The word goodness here in the text is the word used to describe moral excellence. But it's more than just an outward moral excellence. It's intrinsically. It's moral excellence in one's very nature. Beyond that, Paul says, in all goodness which is a phrase to say every kind and act of goodness. In other words, it's all-encompassing. This is the kind of goodness that requires a new nature. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, we read, To this end we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 15-23. It says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Obviously, he's not talking about just the outward deeds, right? And then I think we come to what might be the most frightening verse in all of the New Testament for the one who professes to know Christ. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Folks, this is speaking about people who come to church. They give. They do good works. They look just like Christians look, but there's something missing the fruit of the light. And Jesus is going to look at those people who say, Lord, and He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you once and you backslidden or you're lost. I never knew you. The false prophet, the false Christian can come to church. They can give. They can even join the church. But ultimately... Christ says, you will know them by their fruits. So clearly we aren't talking about merely external works, but rather true lasting fruit that permeates everything about a person. And Jesus makes it clear that an unbeliever can only produce unbelieving fruit and that a believer can only produce believing fruit. The bad tree can't produce good fruit and the good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. Now, we're not saying that Christians are perfect. If you know me, you know that. And if you know yourself, you know that. Far from it. But despite the many mistakes, the falls and the fighting of sin, the Christian bears good fruit because of the work of Christ in him. He perseveres through weakness. He repents when he sins and indeed even hates his sin. And he constantly looks to Christ and his word for guidance and Direction. The very motivation of his heart is to bring glory to Christ. Though he fails, he strives to please God, to love Christ, and to obey Him. And so the believer is good in Christ. There's no goodness in his own or on his own but he's no longer on his own. If you're a Christian today, the reality is it isn't just you. You aren't on your own. You're in Christ. And he's in you. And because of that, you are by nature now 
good. This is also, by the way, a fruit of the Spirit. And that's important because who can have the fruit of the Spirit? Only a believer, right? We know the passage, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and by the way, these aren't different fruits. This is one fruit. If you have the Spirit of God, this is the fruit it produces in your life. All of these things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. And so because you, as a believer, are in fact good, goodness will always impact those around you. Because the one who has been made to be good in Christ inevitably will seek to perpetually find the good for others. Your nature is different. You're no longer filled with self-fulfilling, selfish desires, but because you're good, now you're seeking the good of others. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness. Next we see that Righteousness is the fruit of the light. This has the same understanding as goodness in that it's not merely just outward acts of righteousness, but it's righteousness in its very nature. The Christian is righteous. And this really brings us to an essential doctrine, the doctrine of imputation. We don't have time to go into that in any detail this morning, but basically imputation means to charge to one's account. In Matthew 10, 18, Jesus says that there are none good, right? There are none good. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. So for those people out there who would say silly things like, follow your heart, well, the Bible tells us that your heart is wicked. So probably you shouldn't follow it. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment before the Lord. So then, how are we as children of light to consist of righteousness? Because this is what Paul's saying. Is there a contradiction here? No. The answer is to be found in the reality that this righteousness is something outside of ourselves. It's a righteousness that has been given to us. It's been imputed to us. It's not our own. This is the result of being children of the light. We are, in fact, children of light only because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness is counted to you and to me. It's imputed or charged to us. And so when the Heavenly Father looks at His children, He sees the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians explains imputation quite well. It says, He made Him, that's God the Father, made God the Son, He who made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become righteousness of God in Him. The he here, of course, is speaking of Christ. And so the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, there was no sin in him, was imputed our sin. He was made to be sin on your behalf, on my behalf. And then his righteousness 
was imputed to us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is double imputation. Christ became sin on our behalf, and He bore our sins and our iniquities, and He took the penalty that we deserved. And now, as a result of faith in Christ and His work on the cross, you are made righteous because you're clothed in His righteousness. Do you see how this fruit of the light here is something far deeper and different than just an outward work. It's who the Christian really is. It's not something that can be replicated by the world or done just as an outward act. No believer can produce the fruit of the light because it is a work of God. Even the righteousness that an unbeliever might seem to do, we read earlier, God views it as a filthy garment. Righteousness is simply unattainable by the godless man. But the believer is imputed the righteousness of Christ. And so this righteousness is our standing before God. So if you're a child of light, you are good in Christ. And you are righteous in Christ Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. Peter then quotes that very same psalm in 1 Peter 3, 12. And then in Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a very interesting Verse. Let me read that again. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So naturally, we should ask the question there, what was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? You see, some people have this idea that the Pharisees were overtly sinful and heretical in their outward appearance, but that actually wasn't the case at all. The Pharisees were sticklers for the law. They did the right things in the view of men. They prayed, they fasted, we're told all of this in Scripture. Their outward appearance was indeed righteous in the way it looked. And yet, they were still called whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, and sons of their father the devil by Jesus. So what's the difference? It's interesting because even the Apostle Paul, before he met the Lord on the Damascus Road, was a Pharisee. And then later on in Philippians, Paul describes what his Phariseeism looked like. Listen to the way Paul described himself as a Pharisee. Now he's a Christian here, Philippians 3, 5 through 7. Paul says, Circumcised on the eighth day, a nation of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I mean, Paul is saying, I was it. Born of the greatest tribe, of the greatest nation, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law blameless. 
I don't want to leave out what he adds. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, the Pharisees did indeed have an outward righteous appearance. So what's Christ talking about? Because in here, in Matthew, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you couldn't really do any more than what they did. So we must be talking about having to be more than what they were. Without the righteousness of Christ, which they didn't have, it's impossible to be considered righteous. That's how you and I exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, is that we now have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. That's the righteousness that's required of true, genuine, saving faith. That's the fruit of the light. Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Now, the last fruit, if you'll look at the text that we see here, is truth. Truth. It's almost shocking that I have to say next that truth is what is real. And yet, in our day and age, we need to say that. It's not what is imagined in the fancies of someone's feeble mind. It's reality. It's absolute. Truth never changes, bends, or contorts, or shifts to accommodate someone. As one once said, the facts don't care about your opinions. They're just facts. What's true is true. And the truth is unapologetic. It never needs to explain itself. The truth is deaf. It never hears the pleas to change. The truth is a broken record. It plays the same tune forever. There's no such thing as my truth or your truth. There's only the truth. There's only God's truth. There's no truth as I see it or you see it. There's just truth. And the truth and the light are inseparable. And they are contrary to everything that is dark. And so the fruit of the light, as a child of light, is truth. To walk in the truth Charles Spurgeon says, imports a life of integrity, holiness, faithfulness, and simplicity, the natural product of those principles of truth which the gospel teaches and which the Spirit of God enables us to receive. Warren Worsby said, to be filled with the Spirit is the same as to be controlled by the Word. The Spirit of truth uses the word of truth to guide us into the will and the work of God. You see why truth is also something that is only gained by Christ in us. God is the God of truth. Psalm 43.3 says, send out, send out your light and your truth let them lead me. 
Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Titus 1, 2, speaking of eternal life, says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages. Romans 15, 8 reads, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God is a God of truth beyond that. The Bible is a book of truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Jesus, praying in the book of John, praying for the disciples in John 17, 17, He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. To those who teach and preach the word of God, we have Paul's admonition to Timothy in the pastoral epistles. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, he says, do your best, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And of course, if you recall Ephesians 4.21, Paul says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. The Christian faith is a faith of truth. James 1.18 says, Of his own he will brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. We destroy arguments because the Christian faith is a faith of truth. And anything that teaches or rejects the teachings of the Christian faith of Christ or of the Bible is a lie. What's true is what the Christian faith is founded upon. So God is a God of truth. The Bible is a book of truth. The Christian faith is a faith of truth. And the church is a church of truth. You want to know why we put so much emphasis on God's true church? Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 writes, and he says this, he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the fruit of the light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. The Christian, therefore, is good and righteous, and truthful. Every person bears fruit, as we read earlier. The one who is darkness bears dark fruit, and the one who is light bears good fruit. This is what the Scripture teaches. And so it doesn't matter how many outwardly good deeds someone does, or how many Bible verses they may know, or even that someone professes to love Christ, if they do not bear the fruit of the light, goodness, righteousness, and truth, they are false. Someone says, I love Jesus. And I say, that's great. Why don't you tell me about 
your love for Jesus? What's your church like? Oh, well, I don't go to church. Oh, so you're in between churches. Oh, no, no, I haven't been to church in 10 years. Okay. Well, well tell me about the Word. What, what, what are you studying in the Word right now? Oh, well, I don't really read my Bible all that much. But you say you love Christ. Oh, well, well tell me about the Christian community. How, how do you have that if you aren't in church and you aren't reading your Word? Tell me about your Christian community. Oh, well, I just worship God at home with my family. No goodness, no righteousness, no truth, no Christian faith. Far too many fall into that category. doesn't matter how many outwardly good things someone does do. You can attend every Bible study in Homer. doesn't make you a Christian if you don't have the fruit of the light. It just means you're very busy. Every Christian bears this fruit. And again, I want to make it clear to you that we aren't speaking of perfection, okay? We, we can't mistake this for being perfect. We aren't going to be perfect in this light. But this is what characterizes who you are and the desires of your heart. And the desires of the person's heart is what drives their actions. The motivations of the heart is what drives their actions. But it's just simply to say that there will be evidence of the fruit of light in the life of a Christian. We certainly sin. We all fight that, and it has its consequences even in the Christian life. Sometimes sanctification is stunted because of our sin. We understand that. Sometimes fruitfulness is hindered. We understand that. Sometimes even for the genuine Christian, assurance of salvation can be diminished. Assurance of salvation can be the result of sin in the Christian's life. It doesn't mean that they're in danger of losing their salvation, but their assurance of that can be diminished. But through repentance, all of these things are restored. Even the repentant heart itself is evidence of the fruit of the light. See, when the Christian sins, and there's the difference, one, they hate their sin. Two, they're repentant of their sin. And those things you can't have without God. Without being a child of God, you have no hatred truly of sin, and you have no repentance even. And so when someone just simply says they love Jesus, in reality, in today's world, it has little weight. I want to see the fruit of their life. Do they love goodness? Do they live in such a way that they are concerned for the well-being of others? Have they been made righteous by the living God? Do they have true affection for Christ and His Word and His church? Do, do they even understand the gospel and can they articulate their need for Christ because of their crime of sin? Do they hate their own sin? Do they long for the return of Christ? These are all manifestations of having the fruit of life. They may say they love Christ, but then do they love truth? Is the word of God sweeter to them than the honeycomb, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19? Do they believe that the Bible is God's authoritative, infallible, and sufficient word? Do they love the church 
The difference between the believer and the false convert is that there is light's fruit in the true believer. Verse 10, and we'll close with this, says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The word translated as learn here is a phrase. Trans, trying to learn is the word dokomizo. It really carries the idea of being tested or put to the test to test as in to be approved, much like the Timothy passage we read earlier. I'll give you another example of the word used in another text. The same Greek word is used in Luke 12, 54 through 56. Let me read that to you. Jesus is speaking to the crowd, so that's the setting, and this is what Christ says. He says, it says, and he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze, and there's our word, Dokumitso, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you do not analyze this present time. So that's the word used. In other words, verse 10 in our text this morning is saying that by walking as children of light, we approve or give evidence of our salvation. You prove that your profession is true, in other words. The heart of the Christian is that they desire to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. You won't do that perfectly. I don't do that perfectly, but that's your heart's desire. It drives what you do, how you think, and how you live. And this heart only comes as a result of having been adopted into the family of God by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you truly can never separate fruit and faith. If you are a child of God, you will have the fruit of life, of light rather, in your life. And no fruit is evidence of no salvation. And of course, words alone are never fruit. The life proves the man, in other words, whether he's of Christ or whether he's of the world. So the life of the believer, we're told, will consist of goodness and righteousness and truth. And his goal in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, striving to do, though imperfectly, what's pleasing to God. Let's pray.